stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Thursday afternoon. We'll have more time for your phone calls coming up, 403-974-8255. And look, we, we can list all of the ways in which the decision on Keystone XL is bad for Alberta, bad for Canada, a loss for Alberta and for Canada. But in what way is it a win for environmentalists? They're certainly treating it as a win, treating this as a victory. But is this largely a symbolic victory, maybe even at some level a Pyrrhic victory? What have they really achieved here by blocking this pipeline? I think that's an important question here. As I alluded to earlier, I think Keystone XL has become an unfairly a big symbol in the climate change debate in the United States. And we had a caller earlier allude to some of the controversy over the roots of the pipeline itself. And I think there are some legitimate issues there, and those are issues that can be addressed with any sort of project. But this isn't about whether this should hang a left here or hang a right there. How do you get from Alberta to the Gulf Coast? This was an argument that that blocking this pipeline was about trying to save the climate. Some of the rhetoric around this over the last decade, which is really how long we've been talking about this, even more more than a decade, some of the, the rhetoric was just completely ridiculous and over the top. Nothing changes here in terms of U.S. demand for fossil fuel, U.S. use of fossil fuel, importation of uh, fossil fuels, development of fossil fuels in the United States. Maybe some of those things will change along the way, depending what kind of policies uh, the new president puts into place. But what, why are environmentalists so excited about this? Well, there's a great piece I would urge you to read if you really want to understand this. I, I suppose maybe in some ways it's a moot point now that the decision's been made. But I do think it's important to understand this. You can go to a chemistinlangley.net, which is the website of our next guest, environmental scientist Blair King, joining us this afternoon and his piece on why the cancellation of Keystone XL is bad for the climate, the environment, and for Canada. Blair, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on. I mean, do you, do you share that, that, that perception that this, for whatever reason, and maybe unfairly so, became a, a real symbol in, in the climate change debate? No, I agree 100%. Uh, in the United States, this pipeline and became the big flag to determine whether or not you were considered a, a, a climate hawk or a, a climate denier. And Fighting for or against the pipeline was was how you were deemed. Uh, Donald Trump made made it an issue, and as a consequence, it's the it's all about politics. It long ago ceased to be about the climate and about the real facts of the project. The facts of the project simply don't matter at this point in the game. Do we know how it how it got to that point? Why it became such a, a political issue? Well, it became a political issue because organizations like 350.org and and the like decided that they needed a big project that they could fight, and the uh, in order to fund their various uh, activities. And meanwhile, the uh, the Republicans under Donald Trump took took it and viewed it as a political uh, as a way of showing their support for 
the industry. It was basically two sides, both of which on the extremes decided this was a topic about which they could disagree and where they, they could show themselves to be the good guys and the other guys to be the bad guys. All right. So how should we view any pipeline in, in the context of the climate change debate? Pipelines move product from, from point A to point B, where they're, they're mined, uh, where they're pumped out of the ground to, to where they're used or where they're, they're upgraded or refined. So how are pipelines relevant to, to the debate around climate change or greenhouse gas emissions? Well, if a pipeline encourages production, encourages you to build new in, uh, to to build new facilities, to uh, then it may have a challenge. Uh, if a pipeline is bringing material to a place where it's not good, that's a, a challenge. Hmm. So pipelines do have the potential to uh, to cause problems. That is not being the case with the recent pipelines being proposed in Canada and in uh, in the United States. Most of the pipelines are to move existing production in a safer means. The U.S. the U.S. pipeline system is very old. The Canadian pipeline system is inadequate, and so the aim of the the work recently has been simply to get the pipeline system so it can safely move the necessary production in the in the 21st century. Obviously, Keystone XL would have brought uh, a lot more uh, Alberta bitumen down to to refineries in the Gulf Coast. And and certainly the argument has been, both I think on both sides of this debate, that that would lead to more production in terms of either more jobs or or more greenhouse gas emissions. But what gets left out of the equation when we talk about the added production in Alberta that this pipeline could lead to? Well, the reality is... A single pipeline doesn't determine production at an oil oil sands facility in Alberta because the oil sands facilities are too big and too expensive to be driven by that sort of thing. They're driven by the world oil market. If there's a market that if the price is high enough, the market will uh, the production will be uh, established. If the market is not does not exist new production won't be made we already know that most of the exp- most of the expensive production that was in the pipeline is gone right now alberta is about maintaining its existing facilities upgrading where possible and improving the greenhouse gas uh, intensity and in- improving efficiency to reduce costs on existing facilities it is not in the right now, there is no huge growth going to happen in the oil industry in Alberta because there is no huge market growth available at the at the oil price they can produce at. Well, and do you think? And I mean, it's it's I guess it's a separate question here in terms of uh, you know the the economics of all of this and, and Canada's capacity needs. Whether there's there's a need for this pipeline, if we're going to see others like Trans Mountain, Line 3, et cetera, constructed, I mean, what, what do you make of that side of it? Well, as I, I, I did a piece on this recently, and basically the answer is that this one, Keystone XL, is not absolutely necessary. It does, however, provide a safer, cleaner, lower greenhouse gas intensity route to a necessary market. 
And in doing so, it would increase the available markets, the optionality, and therefore reduce the amount, the drag on the price of Alberta oil and would increase the relative price of Alberta oil and, the, and therefore government revenues and, uh, and government royalties. So it, it, is it absolutely necessary? No, we can always replace that capacity with rail. But rail costs more money, uses more intensity, and results in a lower value being obtained for your fuel, and therefore fewer fewer revenues and less royalties. Yeah, well, and and that's that's a big one. So as you say, we're 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 not really doing anything here by canceling the pipeline in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But there is some environmental risk in not going ahead with Keystone XL, and this is an important point that you've alluded to already. Pipelines, and especially a new pipeline like this, much safer way of transporting this product than transporting it by rail. More Canadian product has made it to the Gulf Coast as a result of rail shipments. Rail is probably, in in some respects, um, a plan B here. So how does that factor into to assessing a, a project like this? Well, when the, uh, when the U.S. government, uh, State Department, did their supplemental environmental impact statements, they looked at the various options. And rail was, the, the big option is straight rail. And rail increases the greenhouse gas intensity of the transportation step by between 28 and 42%. So it's a lot dirtier uh, to get it there. Uh, there are a lot of rail also has increased risks uh, because basically it's above ground and it's it's less controlled. From a greenhouse gas perspective, uh, putting it in a pipeline and shipping it, especially if uh, we the TC Energy plan to use uh, renewable and clean electricity to pump the pipeline means that the moving the material would have been very low greenhouse gas intensity and then then you basically have a better project to move the same material to the same place so going forward you know i i wonder if we'll able be able to detach to some extent, pipelines from from the climate change debate that, you know, we we can have conversations about policy and about carbon pricing and and things that will actually have an impact on fossil fuel demand or, or, you know, the price comparison with with alternatives. But if, if a political decision was necessary from the president's point of view on Keystone XL, what do you think this means going forward for, say, the Line 3 pipeline, the Line 5 pipeline, or, or maybe a future pipeline from Canada to the U.S.? Well, I don't foresee any situation where a new pipeline goes through the uh, to the U.S. There may be some small replacement work, but the pipelines are too easy a target for for activists who need targets because they 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 have fundraising goals, and you get fundraising goals by attacking big targets. You don't get fundraising goals. Uh, you don't meet your fundraising goals by having pleasant, happy conversations with uh, around a round table. As for, I think line five is the one that will be the biggest political one because ultimately line five will hurt both on the U.S. and Canadian side of the border and it will hurt in our politicals in, the, uh, in Ontario, which will matter for, uh, for the Canadian government. So 
line five is where the next big discussion is going to under, undergo. And I think it will be the place where a change in tone may actually exist or a potential for a change in tone will exist. And by the way, and I know you, you've been, uh, you know, studying the specific wording of the presidential permit and, you know, whether there's any option for some legal recourse here. What's your read on, you know, the, the extent to which the president can unilaterally revoke this permit and whether there's maybe any kind of uh, legal recourse Canada, Alberta or TC Energy might have? Well, there's very little legal recourse they can have to reopen uh, the permit and force the government, the, the the president has the right to issue or not issue the permit. All Alberta can do at this point is try and get money back through lawsuits uh, and be, and it discourage future decisions by making it politically and or financially hard on them. But the way the U.S. system is works, Alberta doesn't really have the opportunity to sue. Instead, it will have to be their partners in the United States who have standing, who can say they were hurt by this, who would be able to sue. That and, Alberta can and, maybe, yeah. Well, and arguably, the, the, the group that has the best standing would be, besides TC Energy, which has big bucks, would be the, uh, the indigenous groups who joined in with uh, uh, the Alberta government, because they have membership in the United States. They are a very appealing set of plaintiffs, uh, and they can say that this decision hurt them as nations and financially as individuals, and they have standing in U.S. courts. So if, uh, if that, the, including that group in the stakeholders group was will have show in the long term to have been a very positive one because it provides an alternative to get into the U.S. legal system with really appealing plaintiffs. All right, again, the website, it's a chemistinlangley.net. Uh, much more there. Blair, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks for having me on. All right, take care. That is uh, environmental Bye. scientist Blair King, a chemist in Langley.net. You can read more there, including his latest piece. Uh, that, that This is, in some respects, not just an empty victory, but almost a Pyrrhic victory for some of these environmental groups. Uh, you know, given the, the additional reliance on rail or, or other projects or relying on older pipelines, there's, there's very little here that represents a meaningful victory if your goal is to address greenhouse gas emissions. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. We'll have more time for your calls coming up, a few other things to get to as well. But, you know, we, we've got a new president in the United States, but I guess, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have trade irritants with our biggest trading partner. Certainly Joe Biden has talked about rebuilding alliances and relationships. But uh, one of the first things he did, of course, was to cancel Keystone XL. So we went through a few years of uh, having to renegotiate NAFTA and deal with aluminum and steel tariffs. Hopefully all of that's behind us, but, you know, we, we're still going to have issues to deal with. So I want to talk a bit about, you know, some of these, these big questions, but also specifically on Keystone XL. Now, we have a free trade agreement with the United States, and, and we follow trade laws, etc. And there, there are ways of addressing certain, certain matters, but a project like this doesn't necessarily easily fit into those boxes. The United States was not obligated to say yes to Keystone XL. 
But what happens when we go through a process of the U.S. saying no, then saying yes, and then saying no again? Does that change thing at all? things at all? Do we have any kind of recourse here? Now, joining us to explore some of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Robert Glasgow. He's a partner with uh, McCulty uh, Tetro, international uh, trade and investment lawyer. You can find him on Twitter at the Trade Law Guy. Robert, uh, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Good to be here, Rob. Uh, so let's start with, with Keystone XL specifically. And, you know, there's obviously some some frustration on this side of the border, obviously here in Alberta. You could even say there's a lot of anger. The premier suggesting maybe we retaliate. There's been talk of lawsuits. Do you see any of any of that having any basis in, in trade law or trade agreements? So the uh, actions contemplated by Minister Kenny do have some basis in trade law and in the trade agreement. Uh, the USMCA, or in Canada, we call it CUSMA, mm-hmm. uh, has a provision in it that carries over certain elements of the investor state dispute settlement mechanism that was found in NAFTA. Uh, and that's a mechanism that allows investors from one of the parties to effectively bring a private arbitration case against the government of another party for violating certain protections that are contained within the trade agreement. Um, and that would include protections against expropriation, uh, protections uh, to guarantee national treatment to prevent discrimination against, say, foreign investors, and protection for what we call uh, fair and equitable treatment, which is to ensure that investors are extended uh, a certain customary international law standard of like a minimum standard of treatment. Um, now, CUSMA, when it came into force, got rid of that arbitration mechanism bet- as between Canada and the United States. But it carried over this kind of three-year legacy period where for three years after the new agreement comes into force, investors can still bring a claim under the trade agreement for their investments that existed during the period that NAFTA was a thing. Okay, so it's not necessarily the government of Canada filing a a trade dispute here, but it would be investors, or I guess TC Energy in particular? So it would be investors, but uh, the key question will be whether or not the uh, money that uh, the Alberta government put in, whether or not that's sufficient to qualify as an investment. and. There's a lot of kind of case law and jurisprudence uh, in this investor state sector that goes into uh, whether or not certain things are or are not investments and whether or not certain entities are or are not investors. Uh, but it's entirely possible that uh, Alberta could be considered an investor. It would just take a yeah. some relatively in-depth legal analysis as to their standing. And who would make that determination? So uh, Alberta would probably make the first determination, uh, probably engaging with internal counsel and potentially external counsel. And then uh, if they believe that they had standing, they could file a, a, a notice of arbitration, essentially, uh, with uh, uh, the secretariat, the NAFTA, or in this case, the CUSMA secretariat, uh, and uh likely choosing a very particular set of rules. I don't want to get too archaic and too into Byzantine acronyms that us lawyers are famous for. Um, But they would file that complaint, uh, and then it would be open to the government of the United States, for example, to bring a motion to dismiss if they believe that there wasn't actually an investment, and then it would be settled by the arbitrators. 
Okay. Uh, now, in terms of, of the context of this decision, and, and the decision by this president is, is obviously different than the one made in, in 2015. And I suppose that's because the decision in 2017 changed a lot of things. So what, what's different now that might open the door to a legal challenge than, than simply then-President Obama saying no in 2015? Well, I believe if you go back to when President Obama said no, there was actually a uh, discussion of, I believe there might have even been filing of a NAFTA Chapter 11 case uh, by TC Energy. Um, and that, you know, when that was started, these cases take a number of years, and it's probably likely that it was overtaken by events when Trump reversed course and said yes. Um, so that could have been what resulted there. Um, now that 2017 decision, of course, it says, yes, you get more investment. And that will, of course, be a factor that the parties are going to weigh in terms of whether or not, uh, the, uh, realistic investment backed expectations of the investors, including potentially Alberta were violated. If there are facts on the ground in in terms of the border crossing being constructed or or anything beyond that, what kind of legal impact does that have, or how legally significant is that? So, the facts on the ground, and if there's actually construction underway, um, and again, you don't want to get too hypothetical in this, but it mm-hmm. would potentially go uh, to the question of whether or not there's actually damage. Uh, and also whether or not there is an investment. Uh, because it's not simply enough that you be selling into a market. You have to have some tangible investment in the United States. And so the more connection there is there in terms of construction and whatnot, the more there would be. But again, this is all, uh, all of these facts would be part of the kind of factual matrix that would, you would use to analyze both the claim and the potential damages from that claim. Right. And going forward, I mean, as you say, you know, there, there are some changes under this new NAFTA, the CUSMA, than, than there were before. But I mean, you know, the premise is to have some fairness and some certainty. And you could argue in this case, maybe we didn't get either. And going forward, does it raise questions about other potential projects or investor certainty? Do, do you see some broader fallout here? So... Part of the rationale for getting rid of the uh, investor state mechanism as between Canada and the United States uh, was a recognition by the two parties that they largely believed that they could get adequate um, remedy in the domestic judicial system of the other country. Uh, That's probably because there's been a lot of pushback from civil society uh, about whether or not these investor state mechanisms are appropriate and whether or not uh, they give too much power to large entities to constrain the ability of governments to regulate. Um, now, on the other end, as you mentioned, there's also very good arguments that having these agreements does provide additional certainty. But it is actually kind of interesting that getting rid of the uh, investor state mechanism was something that was, uh, from what I know of the process and what's been publicly released, of course, I wasn't in any of the negotiations, but what was publicly released uh, is a lot of information that it was more or less a bilateral decision, that there wasn't any major impetus to keep it. 
partly because there was a recognition from both sides that the domestic systems in both countries were strong and robust. Now, looking forward, and it seems like maybe the next potential big fight here is over uh, Buy American uh, and the president's uh, plan to to implement Buy American policies here. Uh, again, that seems to fly in the face of what exists in, in our trade agreements. Did you see that becoming the next big issue? I It, it could. Um, and this actually gets even back into the renegotiation where um, – when we renegotiated under NAFTA, there was a specific chapter that provided guarantees about government procurement and provided guarantees for Canadian companies in the United States and American companies in Canada and Mexican companies in either jurisdiction uh, to gain access to the procurement systems, uh, mostly at the federal level. Uh, NAFTA did not reach down into the provincial and municipal procurements uh, as much as more modern agreements like the European Free Trade Agreement, uh, CETA. Um, but the new negotiations, uh, partly because uh, the Americans wanted greater access to Canada than they were willing to give uh, from, again, publicly released information, the Americans were largely seeking kind of dollar-for-dollar dollar reciprocity which would give us only a tiny access to their market, but would essentially open all procurement in Canada to them just because of the sheer difference in the size of our countries and our government spending. Um, the parties agreed that as between Canada and the United States, there would be no uh, procurement protections. Uh, However, there's still an agreement under the WTO, and the WTO has a revised agreement on government procurement that covers certain obligations, including national treatment obligations. But as is often the case, the devil's in the details. And in this case, it's in what we would call the coverage schedules, which are specific uh, annexes to the procurement agreement that state what government entities are covered, what types of goods and services are covered, and what exemptions exist. And the Americans in these agreements are famous or infamous for creating fairly generous carve-outs and typically only agreeing to give access at the federal level and not as much on the state and sub-state level procurements. Um, and that does mean that they get access to things like Buy American that can throw a wrench in supply chains. Now, the hope would be, uh, I know Biden has come out very strongly in pushing the rhetoric of Buy American uh, as part of his Build Back Better scheme. But um, the hope would be that they recognize the integrated nature of the Canadian-U.S. supply chains and the fact that if you start excluding Canadian goods and not granting waivers for Canadian goods, that you will end up with a number of U.S. companies that end up getting excluded because they have these long-term arrangements with Canadian companies, and so they don't have the same access that some of their competitors do to a pure U.S. supply chain. Now, that's a question that Biden's going to have to weigh and the president's going to have to deeply consider but it is one element of why uh, I want to say about 10 years ago, there was actually a side agreement to try to create greater exemptions from Buy American for Canadian companies. 
We'll see how it all plays out. Uh, as mentioned, uh, you're on Twitter at the Trade Law Guy. Uh, more at McCarthy.ca as well. Robert, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate the insight. Thank you very much for having me. All right, take care. That's Robert Glasgow, international trade and investment lawyer. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.